This audio session is taken from the Shofar Bible School first year course. You can register for the full Bible School course by visiting our Shofar online store at www.shofaronlinestore.org. The topic for this session is Worship at Mount Gerizim. It is part of Module 13, Worship. Hi everyone and welcome to the session. In this module we're speaking about worship and basically how worship is a, is a key part of our connecting with God and meeting with God and knowing God. Uh, so what we're doing is we're looking at some case studies of how people worship God uh, at various stages in history. And there's a theme that draws these case studies together. And that's the, the fact that we see in scripture people who worship God at specific mountains. So mountains came to symbolize uh, places of heightened awareness uh, or heightened emotions, you know, a greater understanding of who God is and His purposes for us. So there were significant things that happened at worship uh, at mountains. Um, and in the first session, we we spoke about what worship is. We said that it's ascribing worth and value to God, um, and we said that worship is a is a response. It starts as a response, a response to who God is and to what He has done. And it's something that happens in our heart. You know, it's, it starts inwardly, but it's always expressed outwardly as well. We, we express our worship through our acts of devotion, which can be something like singing or reading scripture or prayer. Um, and we also express our worship with service, serving God and serving others. And so now, as long as humans have existed, we've worshiped. Uh, one of the earliest examples of worship, you can go and read it for yourself, it's in Genesis 4 where Cain and Abel, they bring a sacrifice to God uh, as worship. And it, it really wasn't long uh, where we see in the Old Testament that worship um, turned into ritual. And um, in, in the Old Testament, worship was located at, it, it kind of happened at very specific places uh, like the tabernacle or like the temple. And it happened also at specific times, like at, at various festivals. Um, and to a degree, ritualizing worship makes sense. Uh, because if, if worship is to orientate ourselves to God and to, to true reality, then by embedding worship in ritual, what we're doing is we're, we're creating a discipline. We're creating a rhythm in our lives where we constantly are able to um, engage in this process of ascribing worth to God. Uh, so we're going to be speaking about ritual in a bit, but I, I firstly want to say, I know many people, when they hear the word ritual, they get uncomfortable because uh, maybe we think that, oh, a, a ritualized faith uh, is a hypocritical faith or it's a, it's a lifeless faith. And I understand that. Uh, even Jesus, he was quoting Isaiah when he said that these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So we can very easily engage in ritual. We can do the clapping of hands. We can do the jumping up and the raising and the singing and, and all of that. But we can do that just on the outward without really having our hearts connected with God. But at the same time, rituals themselves aren't inherently bad. Uh, and in fact, humans have always ritualized whatever we find important. Uh, it's, it basically, it helps connect us to the bigger picture, to remind ourselves of the bigger picture uh, and what, is, what makes for a good and for a meaningful life. And so that's why all of life is full of rituals. 
all of the important events. Think, think of a, a baby dedication or think of a, a wedding especially or even a funeral. Uh, you know, throughout church history and in our church services, we, we have these rituals and these symbols to connect us to what is important. Uh, even small family units will form their own little rituals to, to ex- express what's important to them. Uh, I know of a family who, uh, they're kind of spread out all over the world. They live in different places. But every night of the week, wherever they are in the world, they all eat the same meal. So like Mondays is lasagna nights, Tuesdays is burgers, there's, you know, it kind of carries on like that. So, and that's just ex- their way of expressing, even though we're all over the world, what's important to us is family and a feeling of togetherness. So that's, what, that's the power of what, what ritual can do for us. And Christian churches that try to do away with rituals end up just exchanging the, the original ones for, for new ones. Uh, because the point is not to throw out all forms of ritual. We, we wouldn't be able to do that. But to evaluate what are, what are the things that we do communicate about what we believe. This is really important for, for the modern church because in trying to de-ritualize our services uh, or you know, to be relevant to contemporary culture, many times what we're doing is we're just exchanging what we used to have for a consumerist culture. And... In the process, something like worship can so easily become entertainment, where it kind of just looks like any secular concert. Uh, And the challenge then is, are we really worshiping or are we just consuming worship or Christian type experiences? And so for this reason, I even want to say and encourage you to be discerning about the kind of music that you listen to and the worship that you expose yourself to, because not all Uh, modern worship bands and worship ministries are helpful. Uh, They can cause a lot of confusion as to what worship is really all about. And that's why it's really amazing that you hear at Bible school, because with Bible school, we're going back to Scripture and we're we're looking at Scripture and seeing what does Scripture say worship is about, not what does YouTube say worship looks like. What does Scripture say? And in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, there's no doubt as to who worship is for and who worship is directed towards. Okay, so I said all of that to say that rituals aren't necessarily bad. And we're talking about the ritual of worship uh, in the Bible and specifically in the the Old Testament. And to see that actually ritual changed uh, in the Old Testament, the ritual of worship. Uh, In the Old Testament, the the kind of the pinnacle of worship was the temple. Uh, And there at, at the temple, worship was highly regulated, and it was really elaborate as well. And the reason is that the temple uh, became to, it came to signify the presence of God on earth, right? So it's as if we, the, the culture of the day said, this is where God lives on the earth. And so then the, the temple had to be really impressive just to show how much it was valued and, and how much it was worth to the society. But by limiting worship to a very specific time and place, we create problems for ourselves. Uh, If God can be limited to a time and to a place, then that place and that time holds enormous political and cultural power. And uh, we see this in Israel's history. What happened was at one point, Israel splintered into two different nations. And each of the two different nations, they set up their own temple. And they would each say, "This this is where true worship happened. 
uh, you know, Israel in the north, they worshipped at uh, Mount Gerizim, and Judah remained to the south, and they worshipped at Mount Zion. And so this had enormous consequences for the nation of Israel. And we're going to see how it plays out when Jesus, in John chapter 4, has a conversation with a woman that he meets at a well. Let's read that conversation together. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, only his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called, he was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's from John chapter 4, verse 1 to 34. Take 10 minutes to reflect on and discuss this session's key Bible passage together with others in your class. If you are watching on your own, take a few minutes to reflect on the key Bible passage by yourself. Before this point of this conversation, what had happened was Israel was invaded by the Assyrians, uh, and they were never really the same after that. The Assyrians had this policy uh, of kind of shuffling 
populations that they conquered throughout their huge empire. So what happened is they, and they did this so that the, the population couldn't you know, reorganize and resist uh, the Syrian rulership. So what they did was they, they took a lot of the Israelites out of Israel and they sent them to other parts of the empire. And they took other ethnic groups and they put them in Israel's place. And as I said, Israel was never the same after this. They never really recovered as a nation and only Judah remained uh, to the south. And so gradually the, the Samaritans developed as an ethnic group and they came to see themselves as the true Israel. And their site of worship was Mount Gerizim. Uh, and they believed that the, the temple uh, in Jerusalem was an illegitimate temple. It wasn't, it wasn't where true worship happened. And so this constant friction between the, the Samaritans and between the Jews, uh, it really it led to a lot of violence. It even led to, to people being killed. And so it really, it, when you understand the, the background to this conversation that Jesus as a Jew has with a Samaritan woman, it just makes it so gripping because um, it challenges our understanding of who God would consider worthy of his time. Because yeah, this is God on earth. God, the word made flesh. He comes as a Jew. Surely he wouldn't be speaking to a Samaritan. Uh, I mean, every sane Jewish man would completely avoid uh, the Samaritans. And on an even deeper level, not only is he speaking to a Samaritan, but he's speaking to an adulterous woman. And I think this is just such a beautiful picture of how God is no respecter of persons. He's no respecter of our opinions and our boxes and our, uh, you know, religious boxes of God speaks to these people, but not to these people. God comes and he reveals himself. As Jesus has this conversation, he reveals the heart of the Father. And in fact, Jesus in this conversation changes the ritual of worship forever. This is probably the most crucial, critical worship uh, conversation on worship. Uh, that changes everything about our understanding of what worship is. I want to ask you, did you notice something uh, that when, it's in this, when Jesus was speaking to the woman, he said the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say the Father is seeking worship that's in spirit and truth. He says the Father is seeking such people. And this comes back to what we said in the first session, that God doesn't need our worship. God doesn't want our worship. God wants us. God wants worshipers. He's not looking for worship. He's looking for worshipers. And not just any worshipers. He's looking for those who will worship in spirit and in truth. For once and for all, God is stopping worship that is bound to a specific time, you know, whether it's uh, a church service or whether it's a festival like in the Old Testament and worship that's bound to a specific place like the temple or like the church. And he's saying that worship can still happen in those places, but it's no longer defined by those places. Rather now worship happens in spirit and in truth. Now there's been a lot that's been preached and taught about this, uh, but it can be a little bit confusing. There's so many different ways to interpret this passage, but we're just going to look at, at two thoughts uh, here when it comes to what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. And the first thought uh, is summed up by, by William Barclay. I'm just going to read it for us, that Jesus had told the Samaritan woman that the old rivalries were on the way out, that the day was coming when controversy about the respective merits of Mount Gerizim and Mount Zion would be an irrelevance, that those who truly sought God would find him anywhere. Isn't that beautiful? So 
the pettiness of chaining God to a specific time and a specific place was over. The, the fighting between Jews and Samaritans and between different churches about where is the right place to worship and when is the right place to worship, that's over because the word has been made flesh. God was here amongst us. The veil had been torn. And the reality is that now the whosoever can seek God and can know God. So no, no, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter at what time you seek God, all of us can seek God and find him. This is really, really good news. Uh, and it's also important news because I think today, many times we as Christians aren't so different from the Jews and the Samaritans. We love to tie God to our corner and say, God is with us, but God's not with them. And, and them can be anyone who just looks different to us or, or thinks differently to us. But what the scripture is saying is that no matter who you are, anyone, anywhere can seek God. Anyone, anywhere can call upon the name of the Lord. The time for that pettiness is over. The, the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the mission of God is universal. It's global. And then the, the second thought around what it means to worship in spirit and truth is a little bit technical, so I'm going to ask you to hold on, okay? Don't, don't lose me here. But we're going we're gonna to look at what D.A. Carson says, uh, what it means to, to worship in spirit and in truth. Let's read this together. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He's quoting the scripture there. There's an advance on verse 21. Not only is the time coming, but it has come. This oxymoron, which is basically just two contradictory statements, um, you know, the fact that the time is coming, but it now is, uh, is a powerful way of asserting not only that the period of worship in spirit and in truth is about to come and awaits only the dawning of the hour, which is Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. But also that this period of true worship is already proleptically present in the person and ministry of Jesus before the cross. This worship can take place only in and through him. He is the true temple. He is the resurrection and the life. The passion and exaltation of Jesus constitute the turning point upon which the gift of the Holy Spirit depends. But that salvation historical turning point is possible only because of who Jesus is. Precisely for that reason, the hour is not only coming, but also has now come. Okay, so this is quite a paragraph to take in. So we're going to break it down. We're going to slow it down and, and, and look at it a bit more deeply. So what Carson is doing is he is zooming in on one phrase, one specific sentence that Jesus says as a key to understanding worship and spirit and truth. And that's when Jesus says that the hour is coming and it now is. So the hour that Jesus is referring to is the coming of the Messiah. And this coming of the Messiah was going to be so massive, literally everything would change. Everything would be different. In a sense, history would stop and there would be a new, a completely fresh start on history. And Jesus is speaking about himself as the Messiah. And he's speaking about the fact that he has come, he's there amongst them, he's living amongst the people, but they don't recognize him. They don't yet know who he is. They don't yet understand his mission and in fact, they wouldn't understand it until after he had died and been exalted. And so in other words, the hour is coming and is now here because Jesus was there amongst them, but his work still had to be finished. And this is the important part about that. 
because Jesus was now amongst them. He was now the temple. He is now the temple. In John chapter 2, Jesus says that he will destroy the temple and rebuild in three days. He's referring to the fact that he's going to die. And then three days later, he will be resurrected. And so now Jesus becomes the temple in the sense that if people want to know God, if people want to see God, if people want to worship God, they come to the new temple. They come to Jesus in order to know God. He is the way to the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So I think you can see where this is heading, where worship used to be centered around a very specific place or a very specific time. Worship is now centered around a person, centered around Jesus. Now you might ask, how does this apply to worship in our context? And firstly, what it means is that worship is something that happens in church, but it also happens outside of church. It's not defined by our gathering together. Everywhere you are is the right place to worship. Can I say that again? Everywhere you are, whether you're sitting here at Bible school, whether you're at work, whether you're in your classroom, whether you're with your family, whether you're with believers or unbelievers, everywhere you are is the right place to worship. And secondly, worship is not centered around a genre of music or around an activity or a spiritual experience. Worship is a focus on the person of Jesus. It's a focus on who he is. It's a focus on what he has done. It's a response to that. It's in our hearts, through our, you know, starting in our hearts and then coming out in expression, we express our devotion to Jesus. We express our service to Jesus because he is the way to the Father. He is the temple. If we want to know God, if we want to see God, if we want to worship God, we go to Jesus. And so worship is now in spirit. In other words, it's not defined by a place or a time anymore. And it's in truth. It's in truth in that it's centered around the truth of who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He is the way to the Father. That's what worship and spirit and truth is. Amen. Take 15 minutes to reflect on and discuss the following points together with others in your class. If you are watching on your own, take a few minutes to reflect on the points by yourself. You can find the discussion points in your Bible school handbook. Look out for the Living the Word sections in each session.